This afternoon we were considering uh, from John chapter 1, John the Baptist's words, Behold the Lamb of God. Three days ministry, the first day was that the Lamb is here, Christ is here, Messiah is here. Second day's ministry was that we should behold him, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And the third day, his message was that we should follow Messiah. Tonight we move ahead a few days to the point where the Lamb of God was slain for sinners upon the cross of Calvary. The very pivot of history, where the cross shone back throughout the Old Testament, fulfilling all the types and shadows, all being brought to their fullness in Jesus Christ. And of course the light shining forward from the cross uh, upon us who have Uh, by the grace of God, that opportunity to know him as our saviour. And when we preach on the cross, when we preach on the crucifixion of Christ and his sufferings, and the great saving work that he did, we go to the heart of the gospel. And there is a special blessing. I think most preachers would know that if they preach on the cross, there is so many aspects to preach on, and there is such a blessing upon that particular theme. And I think the answer lies probably in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where Paul writes, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And we see that difference today, don't we? If we just go out into the streets and we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, people have no interest whatsoever. To them it is literally what the scripture says, it is foolishness. Maybe Jesus existed, maybe he didn't, maybe he died on the cross. He certainly didn't come back to life again. It's all foolishness. We'll stick to rabbits and Easter eggs. But to those of us who know something of the power of God from the cross of Calvary, it is the power of God, it is that which has saved us and put our feet on a path to glory. Now nothing that Jesus did was by accident. Remember one occasion he said, I have need to go through Samaria. He went there deliberately to meet one lady. He went miles out of his way. But everything he did was on purpose. And it was on purpose because everything he did was in our place. Everything. And so when we look at the various aspects of his life, he was living for me. When he was baptised, we were baptised into him. When uh, he, he... he, he kept the, the law of God perfectly. He was keeping it for us. Uh, and it's no less a case when we get to the cross. When he hung upon the cross, he was hanging there in our place. We sung in the hymn, In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. And the, the little phrase I want to leave with you tonight, been laid on my heart, is from verse 2 of our reading of John 19, it says, And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. Christ wore a crown of thorns, not simply because some sadistic person made it, but he wore it because it represented many things. And, uh, you know, if you uh, have pricked your finger on a thorn, it hurts. It's meant to. It reminds us of the curse. It's also a safety measure, isn't it? To know that something's just happened and you need to see to it. That's in the mercy of God. But the thorns for Christ's crown were far longer 
and sharper than the ones that we deal with. We know that this crown was an amazingly painful thing to even have been made. As I say, someone must have had a sadistic streak to go out to the various bushes that were required that had these long thorns and to even cut those branches. They too must have blooded their hands and then they wove them together in some kind of a circle to make a crown. This was someone who was making a point to make a mockery of the kingship of Christ. Why would you bother to put a crown on if he wasn't a king? He said he was the king. They were going to crown him with a crown of thorns. And they mocked his dignity by throwing a purple robe over him. They mocked his power by placing a reed in his hand. They mocked his authority by thrusting this crown of thorns on his head. And then I think it's in Matthew's Gospel, it says they beat him on the head. You see, this crown wasn't gently placed there. It was thrust upon his head and then it was beaten. It must have been a very painful experience. And so tonight I want to draw your attention to four things about this crown of thorns. Bearing in mind, this was a crown he bore for the likes of you and me. In fact, sometimes we say for the likes of you and me. Perhaps we shouldn't say likes. This is a crown he bore for you and for me. And the first thing I want you to notice is that this is a crown of curse. We take you back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they transgress that one law that they had to keep. They disobeyed God. They listened to the evil one. They disbelieved the word of God. And so they ate of the forbidden tree. And that very act of sin ushered in such a change. Such a change that they lost their relationship with God. A change that meant in the cool of the day when they walked and talked with the Lord, they hid and covered themselves in their own covering. It meant that their bodies began to age. They were living under the curse. And this meant many things. It meant for Eve that There would be difficulty in childbirth. It meant a difficulty in a relationship with Adam. There was now going to be a measure of conflict rather than perfect harmony. Adam's life was going to change. He was now going to work by the sweat of his brow, the scripture says. And every day would be consumed with making sure there was food and provision for them. And this struggle is summed up in Genesis 3 where God said that the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles. And the very picture of the curse, these thorns that were going to come that weren't there before, were now going to be placed upon the Creator's head. If you clear a patch of ground and leave it for just a couple of weeks, particularly this time of year, it's soon covered in weeds. It's an unending battle, isn't it? I was in the garden this morning in one area with my weed killer. I know some people don't like weed killer. Well, you can come and pull my weeds up instead, then I wouldn't need it. But it's something you have to do to keep on top of those weeds. This was a curse, we find here. The thorns are a sign of the curse. A curse brought by humanity's disobedience. And yet when we get to John chapter 19, there the creator of heaven and earth is wearing a crown of the curse. But a curse means more than weeds, doesn't it? A curse means death. The curse meant judgment. The curse meant punishment. 
and for all those who leave this world outside of the salvation, the intervention of God's grace, then there is judgment and there is the place the scripture describes graphically as hell. Christ was made a curse. He didn't deserve to be cursed. He had nothing about him that merited the curse. And the crown that he wore symbolised that curse in a very painful and dramatic way. And this is underlined by God's own declaration. In Deuteronomy 21, he says, those that hang upon a cross, they are cursed. I think he used the words, may they be accursed. And just in case we miss that, the Holy Spirit gets Paul to write when he's uh, addressing the church at Galatia. And he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. We as sinners are, are brought into this life under the curse of the law, because the law condemns us and we cannot keep the law. But he says, Christ has redeemed us from that. How? Being made a curse for us. We deserve that, but the curse was his, as it were, in our place. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed everyone that hangeth on a tree. That crown of thorns signified the curse under which we have been born and under which we live. Christ says, I take that curse, I become a curse in my people's place. But there is more. It is not only a crown of curse, it's a crown of blood. If this crown had been lowered gently upon the Saviour's head, it would have still bled. Such was those thorns. But you can be sure it was not placed gently on his head, but maybe thrust upon his head with a gloved hand. They certainly, the hand that placed the thorns upon our Saviour's head had no understanding of what they were about. They had no understanding of the symbolism of those thorns. They had no understanding that this is the very Son of God. As the centurion said, when darkness veiled the sky, surely this was the Son of God. But this person, their hand, they had no idea. Well might the Lord Jesus on the cross say, forgive them. For they know not what they do. We sing in a hymn, and I think we sing it a little later. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Some years ago, we went to see the Queen's uh, jewels. Uh, see all the various crowns that are there in these uh, cases. You can't touch them, can you? But you know, they are so priceless. They are locked away, and there are soldiers and, or whatever guardsmen round about to make sure you don't get too close. This crown of thorns was more valuable than any crown within those jewels. Queen Mother had a crown made, I think, in 1937. And they took a very special diamond and placed it right in the middle of that crown. In fact, it's so large and precious, I think there are governments of the world who want it back. They all say it's theirs. Well, if you was to get a penknife and try and prize that diamond out of that crown, it wouldn't really be a crown, would it, anymore? And my friends, the precious blood of Jesus is the great diamond in the crown of Christ here. 
And there are those that would take the precious blood of Christ from the gospel. But without that diamond, you have no crown. And without no blood, you have no gospel. What's the hymn say? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This was a crown of blood. He shed from his hands and his feet and his side. Here was the spotless Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Shedding his blood to atone for your sin. To cover your sin. To remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. And not only that. He was to satisfy God's righteous anger. By bearing his own father's wrath for sin. He had no wrath for his son. There was a perpetual and eternal and and perfect love between God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, as his son hangs upon the cross, what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he sheds that precious blood. Oh, we say, well, it was Adam's fault then, wasn't it? My friends, Christ wears this crown and bleeds for my sin. My sin. The very symbol of the curse that God placed upon himself upon the earth now bears my sin and his blood is freely shed because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. This is not a clean execution if there can ever be such a thing. This is not a tidy death but a death particularly devised to cause as much pain as possible. It was a slow death. A long process as this blood flowed from our Saviour. And yet we come to understand by his grace that what he was doing was shedding his precious blood for us. A crown of curse. A crown of blood. Thirdly, a crown of substitution. That means he wore the crown in another's place. We sung in the hymn, didn't we? In my place, condemned he stood. In that sense, we deserve that crown. We're the ones who are cursed, and we live under the curse. We could say, as we look by faith at the cross and our Saviour, we could say, that's my crown. That's my crown. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, that is God, hath made him to be sin for us. There's the substitution. He made Christ to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's a tremendous thing, isn't it? God was made sin in order that we may be made not sin. That's not grammatically correct, but I think you understand what I'm saying. He was not a sinner in that he was without his own sin, but he was made sin. When we're born, we're not made sin, we're born sinners. All of our children, even those present here, we never taught them to misbehave. They came pre-programmed to misbehave. We all did. We all had a tendency to lie to our parents. We all had a tendency to want to steal. We all had a tendency to do those things that are the breaking of the commandments of God. And the scripture says that the breaking of the law is sin. We sin because we are sinners, because that is our nature. 
The same as we look around the gardens and we were looking at next door's uh, garden there and we say, well, what's that tree? Well, it's a magnolia tree. Why? Because it's got magnolia blooms on it. We know it's, it's nature. You won't expect to find blackberries on it later. The same with us. We're sinners and therefore we sin. And that's what has to be dealt with. And this is Christ dealing with it. Not his sin, but my sin. Isaiah tells us that God laid my sin upon him. It's a very graphic description. He laid my sin upon him. And what happened as our sin was laid upon him? Christ bore God's anger and wrath for that. So much so that God turned his back on his son because he cannot look upon sin. And he was made sin. Ah, but he was a sacrifice, wasn't he? The only perfect sacrifice for sinners. All those sheep and all the other animals that have been slain, this sin was kind of pacified for a while, but it, it had to be repeated and repeated and repeated. But Christ now came, and so we can say as we, we see him on the cross, in my place, my substitute, deliberately there for me, that my sin is now removed, cleansed, blotted out, gone, forgiven. And sometimes that's a difficult concept for Christians, isn't it? Because we remember our sin, and we think, well, I'm not sure whether the Lord's going to kind of mark me down for that when I get to glory. But then we go back to the scripture, and it's, it's gone. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's forgotten and gone. He cannot remember it again. There's not many things that God can't do. But that's one. He can't remember your sin if it's been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God, the Father, treated Jesus Christ on that cross although as if he was you, guilty. Guilty because of our sin. Made sin to a depth and extent that I can't comprehend. We cannot comprehend the depth of our own sin, let alone all of the sin that was laid upon him. No one else could have borne it. And he did that that it might be washed away. He took my guilt, made it his own. He took my punishment, made it his own. We sang in the hymn this afternoon, didn't we? My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Did Christ object to this crown of thorns? Did he object to anything that was being done to him? No, we read in Isaiah that as the sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Why did he not open his mouth? Why did he not say, I didn't do these things? Why didn't he call down the legions of angels? I think we referred to this last Sunday. That would make a good film, wouldn't it? Christ on the cross. And all of a sudden, the sky's opening and legions of angels coming down and Christ walking off the cross. What a demonstration of power and might. Yeah, but we wouldn't have been saved. We wouldn't be here. We'd still be lost sinners. No, Christ had to stay on that cross. Was it the nails that held thee there? One hymn says, nay, it was my sin. He had to stay there because he came come to save us. And he could only do that by bearing our sin by covering it in his precious blood and by actually dying and rising again. 
being made a curse because he took my sin, he became guilty. That's why he didn't open his mouth. He couldn't say, I'm innocent, because actually he was guilty. He was guilty of all your sin and my sin. There was nothing to object to. Christ could have said, no, what you're doing is, that's right, I deserve this, because I'm in James Mansfield's place at the moment, and you can put your name there. And not only was he there guilty in my place, but he was there because he loved us. This is not just a technical thing. This is a relationship thing. This is a passionate thing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not go to judgment, should not go to hell. But by this this amazing act of crucifixion, we may come to know him. Peter's words are quoted in Acts 2. He says, Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It seemed that everything was working. The devil was working. Humanity was working to put away this man. He's a troublemaker. Uh, and they took him to the cross. And, and that was it. It was all dealt with. And then we see the other side. We see the truth of the matter. That Christ went to the cross by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was meant to go to the cross from all eternity past. He was born to die. But ye by wicked hands he said have crucified and slain him. So Paul writes to the church of Philippi that Christ was obedient unto death. Even, even the death of the cross. And he was there in my place. It was a crown of substitution. Well, let me give you one more. It was a crown of victory. A crown of victory. Say, so how could a crown of thorns be a crown of victory? The work of Christ that was being done was perfect. Planned ere time began. Executed 2,000 years ago and accepted by the Father as a truly effective sacrifice for the sins of his people. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That God the Father says, yeah, that, that's it. I, I've had to turn my back on my be on, only begotten son. But I accept the sacrifice on behalf of my people. And the scripture says, and we're jumping a little bit here, aren't we? Three days. The scripture says that it was the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that shall quicken our mortal bodies. It was the power of Jesus himself that rose him from the dead. Elsewhere it says it was the power of the Father that rose him from the dead. And elsewhere it was the power of the Holy Spirit. What we can say is that Christ's death on the cross achieved all that it was meant to achieve into the salvation of sinners. And so the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the work has been done. Christ rose from the dead and he ever lives to make intercession for us. You know, when we think of the sufferings of Christ, when you think of this crown of thorns, we may also rejoice in appropriately, as it were, in those sufferings, in that shed blood, in that atoning, cleansing work, because it means the salvation of all that come to him has been purchased. It's done. The hymn writer says, it's finished. Jesus Christ on the cross says, it's finished. In fact, the literal word that he said there would be one word, accomplished tremendous cry from the cross from Christ himself as he wore this crown of thorns he could say 
It's finished. It's all done. Accomplished the work of salvation. All my people will be safely gathered in. That where I am, there ye may be also. A crown of victory. Scripture says death was swallowed up in victory. Through his death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 2, Christ was made a little lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honour. There is no crown of thorns now. He wears, as one hymn writer says, a royal diadem adorns his brow. It was on the cross he gained the victory over sin, over death, over the devil. It was on the cross he opened the way to glory, where the curse is known no more. He overcame the curse. My friends, there'll be no thorns in glory. Revelations chapter 22, verse 1. John writes, showed me a pure river of water, water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of it was a river, and there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, yielded her fruit every month, The leaves of the tree, they were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. My friends, because Christ bore the the crown of thorns, the crown of a curse, when we get to glory, there is no curse. We shall see him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Adam caused the, thro- the thorns. The second Adam wore the thorns that we might be released from the curse. Well, we need to kind of make a bit of application to this. What have we seen so far? The crown of thorns, it was a crown of curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. It was a crown of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He was the perfect sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could bleed for us. It was a crown of substitution. He wasn't there for his sin, but for ours. It was a crown of victory, that through his death, we have eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. So then, thinking of Christ's death should have an effect upon our souls. Should it not move us to hate sin more? In all its forms. Should we not draw closer as we're drawn by his love that he would do such a thing for us? You know, the verse I quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how the preaching of the cross is to the power of God to those that are saved. Do we feel that within our souls, those of you that are Christians? You see, we're saved instantly by the, uh, the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit. And one day we'll know the fullness of our salvation when we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But in between those, we're being saved, as it were, day by day. Even now, we know that ongoing, continual salvation because Christ wore a crown of thorns. It should be also an encouragement that we might rest in Christ, particularly in his saving work. We have a, a prickly hedge at the front of our garden. comes onto the common round the corner there. 
and you don't like to put your hands in it, you know, it's really quite nasty, you want gloves, etc. But in that prickly hedge, little birds make their nest. And they're perfectly safe, they come in and they go out. Their refuge is protected by that thorny hedge. And my friends, we're safe in the arms of one who bore those thorns for us. The one who suffered in our place. The one who has taken the fire of judgment that we might not. In Australia, they're very uh, familiar with bushfires. One method they use to stop them spreading is to actually make a path and fire it themselves. So they set fire before the fire gets there. So when the fire does get there, there's nothing to burn because it's already been burnt. And my friends, when we get to judgment, if you're a Christian, if you've suffered, in, if you've uh, committed your life to Christ, if you know him as your saviour, when we get to judgment, there's no sin to burn because it's already been burnt on the cross of Calvary. He bore it, he made the pathway. The judgment of God cannot touch us because it was already poured upon Jesus Christ. God does not demand a double payment for our sin. Jesus paid it all. The day will come when we see him crowned with glory and honour. But not only that, his people will be crowned. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? James writes about a crown of life. And Peter speaks of the crown of glory. There's no glory without a cross. Even our Saviour, because he went to the, to the, uh, to the cross and he, he bore this crown of thorns. The Lord has given him a name above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And it is with us. We have to take up our cross daily, our witness, our labours for the Master. That we might not gain a crown by that, but that we might serve him because of what Christ has done. And then finally this evening, this crown of thorns is a warning, isn't it? Warning if we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it means we're still under that curse. Christ bore that awful load and we look to him by faith. Would you not believe that for your soul tonight? Humanly speaking, it's rather foolish not to. Because there is life eternal, there is glory, there is forgiveness of sin, there is the removal of the curse. Or you can keep going in the way that you're going. I think I've got a, a tract in my Bible cover there. It says, how to get to hell. And you open it up, there's nothing in it. It's just a blank piece of paper. And that's it. How do we get to hell? Do nothing. Do nothing. Just continue on the road that we're going. But why would you do that when Christ has come and intervened and done this great saving work and wore this crown of thorns and the nails and the spear that went into his side? All of this was for repenting sinners. And my friends, this is still a day of grace, isn't it? You may seek him. And scripture promises, if we seek him with all our hearts, we shall find him. The scripture says, whosoever believeth upon him, they shall be saved. That's not just a mental assent. You say, well, I know he died and I know this. That's not what it means. It's a saving belief. It's when we cast our, our eternal weight upon him. If Jesus died, then Jesus died for me. I cast my all upon him. I have that sense of assurance. Well, may the Lord so bless us as we consider all that he went through for us. This crown of thorns that was born even for his people. Amen.